Well, that was a rush. <laughs> what a night of games last night. And then we get tonight. There's only two. Listen, I know the schedule is very hard to put together, but my goodness, could we get four games tonight? I know it makes my job easier, but it made my job nightmarish last night trying to keep track of everything that was going on. I know I'm, I'm, I'm complaining here, but I like having more than two games. And those two games tonight, the Penguins will take on the Avalanche, that one at 8 o'clock on Sportsnet, and then the Coyotes and the Oilers at 10.30 Eastern, also on Sportsnet. Okay, some some news from the IHF as we kick off the show today. Um, this released today, that was about a half hour ago, maybe 40 minutes ago. Based on detailed risk assessment, the IIHF Council determined today that it is not yet safe to reincorporate the Russian and Belarusian teams back into IIHF competitions. The IIHF will move forward with the 2023-2024 IIHF championship season without the Russian and Belarusian teams. I don't think there's any surprise there. I think we are a long ways away from getting them back into these tournaments. So uh, we await we await their rearrival onto the international scene. But like I said, it uh, doesn't seem like that's going to be any time soon. Uh, looking back at last night, uh, speaking of Russians, Alex Ovechkin breaks another record, this time career 40-goal season. So he surpasses Wayne Gretzky with his 13th and now just needs 75 goals to pass Wayne Gretzky on the all-time goals list. Ovechkin at 820, as we know, Wayne Gretzky, 894. And I know there's a lot of conversations about Alex Ovechkin, and I'm just going to focus on the stuff that I know what I'm talking about, and that's hockey, and that he's the greatest goal scorer that we've ever seen. The other stuff, um, I went to community college, so I'm I'm in no shape or way able to discuss the political side of anything. Well, because I can't, so I won't. Uh, but Alex Ovechkin is a damn good hockey player. That's what I do know. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see... <clears throat> What the Washington Capitals do to try and keep him, well, he's going to be relevant, but keep, keep the team relevant after what was a down year. They made a bunch of trades at the trade deadline, traded everybody away, and they got assets back. How they use those assets to make the team better will be a very, very interesting conversation in the offseason. The Carolina Hurricanes become the second team to reach the 100-point mark. Uh, comeback win 3-2 over the Rangers. Igor Shosturkin and Freddie Anderson were excellent in that game. And and I know that we've been focused a lot on Rangers devils in the first round. And it's, it would be great. It's not out of the realm of possibility that we see the hurricanes and the Rangers play in the first round. And I'd be more than happy to settle on that one, especially after last year's seven, seven game, second round series, like those two teams, the games are always tight. And frankly, it does feel like they bring the best out of each other when they play against each other. So I'd be, I, you could sign me up for that. Other playoff, uh, other games with playoff implications, the Flyers double up the Panthers 6-3. This gives the Penguins a little bit of light. I know they play the Avalanche tonight, and that's not an easy task, especially since the Avalanche are really rolling right now. But it does give them a little bit of light. And if you're Florida, I mean, you got to win those games. You got to beat teams like the Flyers. I know they had the win against Detroit on Monday. Detroit's behind them. The Flyers are behind. Like, you got to have those games when they become games in hand for the other team. Like, you need to grab two points. So now they still maintain that that second wild card spot, one point ahead of the Penguins. But my goodness, this is going to be a tight race going down the stretch here. Uh, we talked a lot about Luke Evangelista yesterday with Adam Vingen, and of course he produces four points on the, on the evening. And the 
Preds are still, they're still in it. People five points behind the jets for the final wild card spot. And they have three games in hand. I can't believe that I'm even having a conversation about the Nashville predators. That is not, they traded everyone away and now they're one step closer to getting Connor Bedard. They traded everybody away and they're one step closer to making the Stanley cup playoffs. It is absolutely wild. And they're scoring at a rate that I don't think anybody expected with the guys that not only that they moved in Tanner Janot and Matthias Ekholm and Nino Niederreiter and Mikhail Granlin, but also that they've been without Philip Forsberg for a while and Ryan Johansson. It's a lot of offensive talent that's out of the lineup. And you can say whatever you want about how their seasons have gone. They're still offensive players. And so it's just a shock to me. Uh, Tommy Novak scored again last night. Just, hey, the Preds are rolling. That's all we can say. Uh, the other team that's in that mix in the Western Conference wildcard race is the Calgary Flames. Uh, much needed win over the Ducks, 5-1. to one. Three assists for Tyler Toffoli, who is up to 65 points on the season. And he's going to be one of those guys that is talked about in the offseason as maybe a guy that teams are interested in down the stretch. Maybe they move for him in the offseason. He's got one year left on his deal with Calgary. And he's, he's a very valuable asset. He's such a good player. And finally, before we get this thing all started, congratulations to Jonathan Quick. He is, he is traded away by the LA Kings to the Columbus Blue Jackets, makes his way back west with the Vegas Golden Knights, and with a win yesterday, passes John Van Breesbrook for second in all-time wins by an American goaltender. Quick just 16 behind Ryan Miller, for the most all-time by an American keeper with 391. We're going to get to the NHLPA players poll when we get this thing started. Matt Marchese in for Jeff Merrick on the Jeff Merrick Show. Let's get going. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Coming up in a couple seconds here, Scott Lachlan from NHL Network Radio, co-host of The Morning Skate. We'll also be joined by Sam Cosentino, NHL on Sportsnet, and lead draft analyst. We'll go over his March rankings as well. And in the second hour, Steve Valcat, Rangers analyst, former NHL goalie and president and CEO of ClearSight Analytics. We'll talk about the Rangers. We'll talk about some goalie stuff as well. Uh, and to wrap things up, Josh Yoey from The Athletic. Oh, and the random player of the day is back today. And it's a good one. An oldie but a goodie. Uh, I'll give you a hint. Old-time hockey. That's all I'll give you. I'm sure you can figure it out. It's not that difficult. Joining me on the line, Scott Lachlan, NHL Network Radio, co-host of the Morning Skate, and my favorite person right now because he was pinch hitting for Elliot, who let me know that he's not going to be able to join. So, Scotty, uh, first of all, you're the man. Secondly, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Just happy to, uh, to 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 be a seat filler here. It's like going to the Oscars or the Grammys, you know. Just you know, somebody doesn't show up. Somebody comes down with something. All of a sudden, you need somebody to to fill the seats. And whether it's Kramer on Seinfeld or me uh, here on a Wednesday afternoon, Matt, I'm always happy to join. Well, that's how I feel when Jeff goes away. I'm the seat filler, <laughs> so so we're both kind of in the same boat here. Um, listen, I wanted to talk about this NHLPA player poll because. Uh, there's there's a lot of unsurprising things when it comes to this poll, like which goalie would you rather have in a must-win game or which player would be the most impactful in a, a game that you must win? The the one thing that I do know about these player polls is these, these players, they tell on themselves. They mm -hmm. tell you that they're not watching nearly as much as, you know, we are, and I get it. They've got a job. They're NHL players. I understand it. But there are some guys that are, you know, real students of the game that watch. They know the history, but there are others that really tell on themselves in these polls. 
Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I've talked to some former NHLers, too, and they're always hesitant to say that players are 100% focused and committed on every question that comes their way. You know, it might be like the Pro Bowl holding or what used to be the Pro Bowl before they started playing a skills competition, Matt. You know, it might be reputation, right? Because, oh, one in doubt, you know, if there's somebody you hate to play against but would love to have as a teammate, go with Brad Marchand. You know, one in doubt, go with the best all-around player being Sidney Crosby because he's won it time and time again. I think there's a certain amount of that that goes into it, but I'm sure there's a certain amount uh, of honesty, as you suggest, uh, that goes into it as well. Uh, This time around, uh, we're told that they had more than 600 players that actually cast ballots. Uh, from everything from the most competitive player, the best all-round player, to the guy who has the best shoe game. And I guess Austin Matthews is the guy who wins that award, if you can call it such. Uh, So Austin Matthews is the guy that leads the way in terms of footwear and things of that nature. Uh, He would like to lead the league in in terms of uh, other different types of uh, accolades that would come his way, and he'll have a chance to certainly answer those critics coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Well, it's funny, because I talked about Alex Barkov on the show yesterday, and I said, Mm -hmm. you know, when you talk about a guy who's underrated for so long he just becomes properly rated and that's Alex Barkov and then of course after talking about it yesterday uh what ho-hum what do I see Alex Barkov 23% of the vote uh by the players as the most underrated the guy's only the leading scorer in his team's history and is somehow still (laughs) underrated like I don't know I I don't think that Alex Barkov is underrated like if I were to look at this list like Sebastian Ajo makes some sense Jesper Bratt makes Mm -hmm. some sense Braden Point even makes some sense, despite the fact that, you know, he's he's had a lot of playoff success. He's having a great year this year, but Braden Point is not the star of his team. So that, to me, would make him underrated. Alex Barkov is pretty darn good in Florida. Yeah, I think, you know what, and I would do the same things too, and I agree with you, Matt, as well. If you talk about a guy year after year after year being underrated, perhaps we're giving him his just desserts in the end. And he used to say the same thing about Jamie Benn when he first came into the NHL. The first couple of years, Jamie Benn was so good for the Dallas Stars, and yet nobody's talking about him. And, you know, his teammate, I guess, at that time would have been Louis Erickson, and Erickson was consistently good year after year and maybe didn't get enough publicity. I look at it this way. I, I mean, I think Braden Point, you're right. Uh, he gets overshadowed on his own team by all the star power that surrounds him when we're talking about a future Hall of Famer in Vasilevsky, we're talking about a future Hall of Famer in Victor Hedman, Kucherov and Stamkos will go to the Hall of Fame without having to pay admission someday as well so I think he just gets overshadowed on his own team, I think when it comes to a guy like Barkov, and maybe to a lesser extent a guy like Sebastian Ajo they don't play in the biggest of markets, right, they're non-traditional hockey markets as we like to say and because of that I think they kind of get undersold a little bit. I also think that when it comes to those two teams, the Panthers and the Canes, they need to make long playoff runs to stick around a little while longer when it comes to the postseason. They need to be playing those games that everybody is watching come springtime. And until those two teams start making these runs towards the Stanley Cup, and you know these are the types of teams we're talking about from middle to late May into early June, then I think that these players probably won't get the recognition that they deserve. But you're right. And when you look at Barkov, when he's the franchise's all-time leading scorer now, just a little bit better than his his good friend, of course, and now former teammate Jonathan Uberdo, I think it's saying something. And I think that the players around the National Hockey League start to recognize that. Yeah, the guy when I think of under... I, I think they should just change it to underappreciated because that mm-hmm. probably makes a little bit more sense. Like, the guy for me that's underappreciated is a guy who's going to score 50 goals this year is Miko Rantanen. When Nathan McKinnon goes down, Miko Rantanen's yeah. a star. When when you need a big goal, Miko Rantanen can do that. You need a big pass, Miko Rantanen can do that. And all he does is put up points every single year. 
And he's the third highest scorer from that that draft class with McDavid and, and Marner being ahead of him. And he was the 10th overall pick. Like, for me, underappreciated probably makes the most sense for this award. Yeah, and, you know, the guys we talk about when it comes to the Avalanche, first and foremost, we talk about McKinnon, and then we talk about McCarr now, right? And and I, I, I know that Kale McCarr won the top defenseman award and just kind of won it running away. And the guy that's going to win the Norris, actually, was a little bit further down the list. I think uh, Carlson ended up being fourth or fifth uh, in terms of the, the voting there by the NHL players who did vote more than 600 uh, in this annual balloting contest here. Uh, but, yeah, I think Rantanen, uh, again, when we talk about, you know, players that could uh, overshadow this, certain extent i think that happens with the avalanche no doubt because as long as 29's on that team and as long as kale mccarr is going to be in the conversation for the norris and we think that'll be the rest of his career uh, i think there's probably a reason why he doesn't garner as many headlines perhaps you can even take it back to the avalanche of days gone by like when you think back to the avalanche and winning stanley cups matt you look at guys like joe sackick uh, certainly getting all the the headlines and all the accolades for what uh, burnaby joe turned out to be uh, to a lesser extent you'd have a guy like milan hayduk and you look at Hayduke and all the numbers he put up and where he ranks in terms of the avalanche, in terms of all-time scoring leaders and such, and all that he accomplished. I think a guy like Hayduke, even going back a long, long ways, would get overshadowed by guys like Joe Sackick. Yeah, for sure. Milan Hayduke was a hell of a player. Like, Talk mm-hmm. about a guy that could, that could score over 1,000 games, 375 goals. Like Pretty, pretty good. Uh, Scott Lachlan, NHL Network Radio, and co-host of the Morning Skate, joining Matt Marchese on the Jeff Merrick Show. So we mentioned Colorado. Jared Bednar gets uh, a much-deserved contract extension. You know, I, I talked about this yesterday. He really should be getting some Jack Adams votes this year. And I, I know he he might, he probably won't win because, you know, everybody's everybody's all about, you know, Jim Montgomery in Boston for good reason. Uh, Bruce Cassidy in Vegas. They like, you know, all the three, all the coaches that change places. Pete DeBoer goes mm-hmm. to Dallas, has a great year. But Jared Bednar should get more recognition for the sole reason of, this team, there were expectations coming in. They've battled the injury bug like crazy this year, and they still got a really good shot at winning the Central Division despite all of that and playing in the Stanley Cup final last year and winning. Like, they're, for, for my money, Jared Bednar is probably my coach of the year. Yeah, I think he deserves recognition. We know about the story. It's a great story, too, right, where he was hired at a rather late juncture when Patrick Waugh and Joe Sackick had a bit of a divorce that took place a number of years ago. And after that first tough season where he was thrust into it and really didn't have much in the way of preparation time for a training camp at all, uh, he just turned things around the second year and the third year and onwards and onwards to the point where they became Stanley Cup champions. And, look, Joe Sackett deserves a lot of credit for this, too, for sticking with Jared Bednar. And, you know, we talked with Jared going back to the draft and, you know, talked to him about, you know, reaping the benefits of winning a Stanley Cup and how did it, how did it feel and was it sinking in and such. And, you know, we were talking with him about how things easily could have gone uh, awry, uh, that he could have been let go after that first tough season, albeit coming in late. Uh, he had had Calder Cup success, as we know, beforehand uh, with the Lake Erie Monsters, uh, but he still had to prove it at the NHL level, and he had a real, real tough go of it to start. Joe Sackick said, no, I think this guy's got it within him. Uh, he was kind of put into a bad position coming in late like he was. I think it was early August when he finally was appointed as the head coach of the Avalanche. So credit Sackick for staying with it. Credit Jared Bednar for continuing to win it. doesn't matter what the league 
league has been. Of course, he's won championships. So well-deserved, I think, for him. And I, I think he does deserve recognition. I always find, Matt, that the Jack Adams Award is one of the toughest awards to predict, right? Because you've got usually the, the, the guy who is coaching a team that seemingly overachieves, that wasn't expected to do much, is the guy that is the odds-on favorite. Or, in this case, as you pointed out, Jim Montgomery with his stars needing to win, or at least his, his uh, Boston Bruins, excuse me, a little Freudian slip going back years, but with his Boston Bruins, uh, having a chance here to have the most wins in one particular NHL season in league history, they need nine in their final 12 games to make history that way. Uh, they're in the midst of an historic season, and so I think that there's no way around it. I think Jim Montgomery's going to get it. I also think Lindy Ruff certainly deserves a lot of credit for that Devils team that finished, what, 37 points out of a playoff spot last season? Two games in at the Rock in Newark, they're saying, fire Lindy, fire Lindy. A couple of weeks later, they're saying, sorry, Lindy, sorry, Lindy. And he's got this team that's competing for a Metropolitan Division title, too. So I think for me, it's probably Montgomery getting the nod. I think he's going to win it eventually just because you cannot deny uh, just how great the Bruins have been all season long. They started the season with their injury adversity, as we know, and yet they won and won and won some more. I think the Devils and Lindy Ruff deserve uh, a little bit of an accolade and a nomination. And then, like you say, it comes down to whether it be Bednar, whether it be Bruce Cassidy, whether it be Pete DeBoer. Uh, Rick Bonus had done a great job up until a couple of weeks ago, and now, of course, the Winnipeg Jets have got all kinds of concerns as to whether or not they can reach the finish line. So, uh, so many great candidates out there, no doubt, but I think ultimately Jim Montgomery, for the reasons we talk about, is going to get the nod. You know, the, the, you're right about the Jack Adams, because the one thing that, that tells me that the Jack Adams trophy isn't actually for the best coach is that John Cooper's never won it. That's pretty mm-hmm. pretty sta- pretty straightforward for me. Like we're talking about the longest tenured head coach. He's won the Stanley Cup twice. Been to the Stanley Cup final another time. I mean, I don't know. John Cooper didn't win the award when they when they were setting records. I know they lost in the first round to the Columbus Blue Jackets, but even when he was doing that, he wasn't winning. So for me, I don't want to say it's a fraudulent award because that would be very unfair. But it's not the award isn't given out to the best coach. It's like you said, given out to the best story in a sense. Yeah, and I think, look, uh, you could say, well, the Boston Bruins are talented. They've had a nucleus that's been there and done that, and they've made these playoff runs and such. But that wasn't necessarily the case to start the season. We remember they were without McAvoy. We remember they were without Brad Marchand. They had numerous other guys throughout the course of the season in and out of the lineup. They've been missing everybody at one stage, it feels like. And all of a sudden, you know, they become the best defensive team in the game. Uh, I think it's not easy for a coach to, you know, make the transition to a new team to begin with. Jim Montgomery's been very upfront about some of the challenges he faced away from the rink, and he's overcome those and has become a great success story, too. So just to say, well, Boston's Boston. They've got this pedigree. They're always there. Well, they've got Bergeron, and they've got Marchand, and they've got McAvoy, and so on and so forth. Uh, they've got Pasternak, obviously. Uh, I think it's too easy just to say, well, you know, Boston's good and they should be good. I don't think that was the case at all. I think they had adversity even before the puck dropped in October. I had them not making the playoffs, so that would be so adversity so enough. Um, Alex Ovechkin last night reaches a 40-goal mark for the 13th season. He passes Wayne Gretzky. Um, I, we don't really need to get into the accolades as much because, listen, he's he's going to probably pass Wayne Gretzky. It's going to be a... Listen, there's going to be a conversation. It's going to be a complicated one about what his legacy is. On the ice is one thing. Off the ice is an entirely different thing. But what I wanted to take a, a, a little gander at here is what do the Caps do this offseason to, to keep themselves competitive? Because that was that's the deal. 
It's Alex Ovechkin breaks this record in a Washington Capitals uniform, but this team never hits rock bottom. They traded away a bunch of guys because this year wasn't the year, but I'm curious to see, like, I I don't see them making some of these picks. I don't see, you know, I, I think that there's a conversation to be had about the Washington Capitals being players this offseason. No, I think you're exactly right. I think, truth be told, Matt, if Brian McClellan had his druthers, he would probably strip it right down and go into a rebuild. Uh, but to your point, I don't think they can do that with Ovechkin, you know, a season and a half away from making National Hockey League history and one of the most seemingly unbreakable marks in hockey history is going to fall by the wayside, as you, as you mentioned off the top of the hour. Uh, so I, I think, you know, they, they almost owe it to Ovechkin to at least be somewhat competitive, to be a team that's going to be in the conversation for the playoffs. Uh, I think, again, if it wasn't for Ovechkin and chasing this record, I think with a lot of expiring contracts, McClellan might just sit back and go, you know what, this is going to take two, three, four years to build this thing back up into a Stanley Cup contender once again. So uh, I think that this will be the ultimate retool. I mean, it's what fans in Vancouver have heard for so many years now, and even Jim Rutherford going back, what, a month and a half, two months ago, even talked about a retool again, and some Canucks fans started to, to roll their eyes collectively, like, we've tried this, we've tried this, it hasn't worked out but that's kind of where they're at and I think that that's where Washington is going to be at as well they've already started to retool a little bit here especially when it comes to the back end because if you looked at their at their roster and what their contracts uh, look like for years to come and just go to cap friendly to check it all out of course hockey fans know all about it I mean other than John Carlson as of like a month ago, they weren't committed to too much just beyond John Carlson, who, I mean, regrettably has missed all this time, hasn't played since December the 23rd, and that's one of the biggest reasons why the Capitals aren't in the playoff spot right now, quite frankly. But Carlson, and then what else? Well, they were rumored to be moving Trevor Van Riebsdyk at the deadline. Uh, they did not move him, and as it turned out, right afterwards, they signed him to a contract extension. They've got some found money here, right? no doubt, in Rasmus Sandin with how well he's played, and he gets into a more favorable situation where he's playing more minutes with more responsibility. And so far, young Rasmus Sandin, much to Leafs fans' chagrin, uh, has stepped up big time and been a real revelation for the Washington Capitals. So even on the back end, things are, are starting to come around a little bit. They're clearly committed to Darcy Kemper, their number one puck stopper, who's tied for the league league in shutouts uh, with with five shutouts so far this season. Uh, And they've got, again, some question marks with regards to guys coming back. Dylan Strom, of course, has re-upped and extended there in Washington. Uh, So they've got got a a team that's going to be competitive at the very least. And like we say, I think that's the way it's got to be with, with Ovechkin on the verge of making NHL history. So there, one of the games last night was, I think the, the style that prevails in the playoffs ended up winning the game last night. And it was actually a better game than the score would indicate, but two one the wild over the devils. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I look at, I look at Philip Gustafson. He makes 47 saves in the win. He's not going to get the accolades that he probably deserves. He hasn't played enough games to get Vezina votes, but we're talking about a guy with the second highest Uh, save percentage in the league, second best goals against average. And he got traded for Cam Talbot. And I made the point yesterday, where would the Ottawa senators be if they had Philip Gustafson? I'll say it till the cows come home. That was, it was the wrong move at the time. Hindsight being what it is, but I said it at the time, they moved the wrong goalie. And now the Minnesota wild, you know, that, that tandem of Gustafson and flurry has really given them some life here, especially down the stretch. And dare I say that that trade, we talked about underrated players. Talk about an underrated trade this offseason that's really kind of vaulted the Wild into a, a different territory here. 
Well, and I think, Matt, what Gustafson has done is it's pushed Marc-Andre Fleury to be better. And in the last three weeks, Marc-Andre Fleury has been outstanding in goal for the Minnesota Wild. And look, they've needed the goaltending to be good. Uh, the unexpected offense, I know last night notwithstanding, and Matt Boldy had to play beat the clock, of course, to win it in overtime against the Devils. And like you say, Gustafson was a, the biggest reason as to why they won with a 47-save performance. But when Kaprizov went down, I mean, everybody thought, okay, that's it. And just make the play. Playoffs. Just make the playoffs and try to get Kaprizov back and then see what you can do perhaps in upsetting some teams along the way. They've been so much better than that. All they've done is one, and like I said, other than last night, they've scored a lot of goals. And whether it's Boldy or Joel Erickson Eck or Ryan Hartman after missing all that time coming back and being an offensive contributor once again, things are really coming together from an offensive standpoint. And again, nobody would have seen this coming, Matt, because Kaprizov was producing about 41% of the goals he was in on for Minnesota. I think he was second in terms of percentage, only to McDavid in terms of percentage of offense supplied to his team. So when they lost him, and even when he was healthy, at times they were offensively challenged. So nobody could have foreseen that they would all of a sudden start to score a lot. But that they have done. The goaltending, as you say, has been lights out. Uh, this is a team that decided they were going to hold on to Matt Dumba and such at the deadline and, and go forward and take a run at it and, and use him as an own rental. And if he walks off, well, he walks off. But we're going to go all in at this point uh, in Minnesota. So I, I think things have, have really come together for that Dean Evison-led team. He's done a great job in holding it together. And, uh, again, they just couldn't score with Kaprizov. Now all of a sudden they're scoring a lot without him. Uh, and all the while the goaltending has been the, the common denominator that's kind of upheld that, that Minnesota team to a point where, who knows, they could just win the, the Central Division in the end. Scott Lachlan from the Morning Skate and NHL Network Radio. So I'm, the Minnesota story is so interesting to me because much like I believe the Islanders are kind of the same, they, they, they're going to be tough to play against in the playoffs because mm-hmm. they've, got some, they've got some real nasty players. Like you look at what the Islanders do, did yesterday like Cal Clutterbuck and Matt Martin and Casey Sezikis and like they've got some they've got some grit and when you look at Minnesota you got your Ryan Reeves you've got uh Hartman's nasty to play against uh Marcus Felino's nasty to play against Jacob Middleton and then I, I love that you mentioned you know what they've done without Kaprizov because it felt like for like a two-week stretch that if Kirill Kaprizov did not score, that nobody was going to score in the Minnesota Wild. And now you look at, you know, Matt Boldy is really starting to live up to that contract right now. Mm -hmm. I I just look at Minnesota and I say, the way that they play team defense, the way that their goaltending has been of late, I don't want to play them in the playoffs because you know what they were? They remind me of how Bill Guerin would play in the playoffs. He has built the team within the image of himself. That's what it kind of feels like. And, I don't know. Like they may not be thought of as a cup contender in the West, but I think that they're a dark horse just because in the playoffs, we know goal scoring is at a premium in most cases. And when it gets down to it, they're going to be a really tough out. Yeah, and they're going to get the other 97 back at some point here in the next week or two for sure as they head towards the playoffs too. So that could make them very dangerous. And, you know, the comparison with the Outers, I think is a real astute one too, Matt, because these are the types of teams that just by the way that they play, they play that playoff style hockey all season long in the regular season. The challenge for teams like that, especially when it comes to the Islanders, 
is can you find the extra half goal uh, when, as they say, the old adage, time and space is taken away come playoffs where, you know, there, there's so much more focus on, on taking players away in, in terms of making sure that you've got your check, just the little details within the game that we know, of course, uh, that are omnipresent when it comes to the postseason. You know, can a team like the Islanders just find just that extra added boost, you know, whether it comes in five on five or, dare I say, on the power play, because uh, their power play has been atrocious this season. They thought that Bo Horvat coming in would rectify some of those issues because of all the power play proficiency he had with the Vancouver Canucks earlier this season. Hasn't necessarily worked out that way. Again, still time to salvage once you get to the playoffs, if they can get in as to what they can do. So this is an Islanders team that will be no easy out. And, and when you start with Ilya Sorokin, too, a guy that's probably going to be a Vezina Trophy nominee this time around, one of the top three goaltenders under consideration. I think that's a pretty good starting point. They've always had a good blue line, I think. Uh, the question is, again, are they going to be able to score enough to win come playoff time? Will they have the extra added half goal? Can they find a dynamic game breaker, whether that's Barzell coming back, whether that's Horvat rediscovering his form from earlier this season in Vancouver, whether it's Brock Nelson, and hopefully he's okay after taking that hit last night from Achari, uh, whether it's him just continuing to keep on keeping on because he's been their best offensive player all season long, or as you say, those key contributors that great fourth line that they have most nights uh, that are difference makers as well. That'll be the question. You play great playoff-style hockey all season long. You're going to take that into the playoffs with a chance to win. Can you find the extra added offense that it's going to take to get past uh, where you got past uh, a couple of years ago when you went to back-to-back Final Fours? That's always been the big question with the Islanders. Goaltending and defense is great go score the extra half goal per game, and that could be the difference maker. Well, the other team that's like that is the Carolina Hurricanes. So they get to mm-hmm. they get to 100 points yesterday. A pretty good game with the Rangers. Shesterkin and Anderson were both great. And, you know, the, the Carolina story is an intriguing one to me because they lose two big-time scores. Like, Pacioretty barely played this season. They lose Sveshnikov to a torn ACL. And all they've done since is just managed to win games. Listen, they they can lock down defensively. They've got they still have some dynamic scores. They have Aho. They have Natchez. I, I love their their defensive group. But isn't this part of the genius with Rod Brindamore? Talk about talk about building a team in your likeness. Uh, the Carolina Hurricanes are very much built like that, and and they're also going to be a tough out because they may not be the most physical team, but they do have enough skill, and they're so good defensively that they could absolutely make a run without with missing two of their top scores. Yeah, next to the Boston Bruins, I, I still think that they're probably the best defensive team in the league, uh, next to Boston. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 a gut punch for for them to have Svechnikov go down, the All Star that he is. Obviously, Pacioretty comes back and plays a handful of games, and you're thinking, okay, this is this is the guy that could make the difference for them. Uh, we had been led to believe uh, that they were in on Timo Meyer, but it was the Devils who won the Timo Meyer sweepstakes. So you just wonder, can they score enough? You're right, uh, you know, and and. Last night, you know, they get a goal from Jalen Chatfield. I don't know who had uh, him on their bingo card to actually get that big goal to equalize at New York in a game that they eventually uh, went on to win, of course, with Tara Vine and then scoring the game winner with 233 left to play. You know, at the end of the day, too, Matt, and look, I mean, I don't have to, you know, let Leafs fans in on, on Freddie Anderson. Look, he's healthy. 
and we hope he's healthy come game 83. Uh, he's got some playoff demons to exercise, only from the standpoint that he's got to prove that he can take a team on a run. Last season in the playoffs, they missed out on him. Uh, it was a tough pill to swallow for that, that Kaniac Nation down there because they wanted their number one healthy, like every team, to, to, to be a, a guy who could determine the outcome in this series. I think they really missed him. He'll get an opportunity this round. I know he's playing for his next contract. I know he's playing for his future in Carolina or otherwise. And uh, I would have to think, after the victory he had last night against a really good guy at the other end of the rink in Shusterkin, uh, that he's got to be chomping at the bit right now to get that opportunity to prove that he can take a team on a run, can win a couple of rounds. It won't be easy, especially starting in that division. Uh, but Freddie Anderson being healthy and productive will be a, a great boon, no doubt, for the Canes at this time of the year. Yeah, the first round matchups are going to be awesome. It doesn't matter who's playing who. Uh, this is it's always awesome. So I'm not really too concerned. Uh, listen, Scotty, you're awesome as well. Thanks again for pinch hitting today. Really appreciate it, pal. Anytime, Matt. Thank you. There you go. Scott Lachlan from the Morning Skate on NHL Network Radio. When we come back, draft rankings, Sam Cosentino style. That's when we come back on the Jeff Merrick Show. Matt Marchese in for Jeff. You're listening on the Sportsnet Radio Network and watching on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the Jeff Merrick Show. Matt Marchese in for Jeff. Jeff will be back tomorrow. Fear not. But then he's he's not on for a couple days next week. So Lance, you can put your hands down. Stop your celebrations. He, Lance is already sick. Um, joining me on the program now, uh, Sam Cosentino, NHL on Sportsnet, lead draft analyst, and March break, Dad. How is March break going for you, Sam? Well, uh, we did a little eye fly yesterday, so that was cool. And today, if you're in the background, we got a little Dave and Buster's going. Can I? Can so. you adopt me, Sam? I'd <laughs> I'd like to do this on my March break. Whatever March break is for me. Let's do it. A little <laughs> eye fly. Do you got the you got the wherewithal to do that? I guess that's the easy way to say it. Probably not because I'm afraid of heights. So anything that I'm Ooh. off the ground is probably not a good thing for me, Sammy. Ooh, no, we might have to take a pass <laughs> on that one. Just take we'll just go out for lunch or something. I'm okay with that. I like food. I like food. We're good. Um, All right. Um, okay, your March rankings are up on sportsnet.ca, and obviously we know who number one is. It's uh, it's not at Carter Bedard. No, I'm kidding. Um, but can you put into context how incredible this season is? Like 70 goals, 72 assists, 142 points in 55 games. Like, it's gotten so bad that people are stalking him outside his house. It's, it's pretty cool. I mean, when I think about the crowd in Saskatoon last week, 15,000 people, that probably hasn't happened there in a long time, and they've had good teams. So the fact that people are recognizing this, the fact that he's the first exceptional player from the Western Hockey League and he's lived up to the billing and I think even exceeded it is super cool. But the best way, like, if you're just tuning in, you never listened to this show before or you're a fringe hockey fan and we're trying to suck you in to being a full-time hockey fan, the best way I could put it is if you go out and you watch House League hockey, if you go out and you're watching, you know, whatever, whatever hockey it is that you're watching, and to think that the person you're there watching or cheering on is scoring one goal and one assist every single time they go on the X. That's what Connor Bedard has done throughout the course 
of his Western Hockey League, not season, but career, which will end up spanning, I think, it's 134 games after he plays two games on the weekend. Uh, we'll need to score in one of them to average a goal per game per career and to average two points per game for his career. So that's the best way I can put it. If you think about, you know, a Connor McDavid or related to an NHL player, that's pretty crazy stuff because over the course of 82 games, that would be a 164-point season with 60 with with 80 of them being goals. That's just not something to see. So he's doing next level stuff. It's amazing to watch. It's not really fair. And when you look back at the historical junior seasons, you look at, you know, Mario Lemieux and Pat LaFontaine and, you know, you can kind of go down the list. I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to diminish their seasons and, and the success that they had, but the game is so different now that you can't hide anymore. Like you can't, everybody's got video. Everybody's got the same amount of things that you do. The fact that he's doing it with all this pressure around him and the fact that he's been doing it from such a young age is to me, the most important piece of information here is that everybody's got the tools that you can get to stop him, but they still can't do it. Yeah. That, and that's the, you know, especially on a Regina team that isn't super deep. There's no question. He's getting the top matchups every night and he's probably getting a pair of 20 year old defensemen. And he's probably getting a 20 year old center up against him Every single shift he goes out there. Um, and, you know, to try and put some of those things in context, when you think about, you know, the Lemieux years and those guys were putting up 190 and 200 points a year in junior hockey. You're right. The game has just changed so much that when you look at the same sort of thing that's happened in the National Hockey League, when Gretzky's putting up 212 and, you know, Lemieux's putting up 192 points and that sort of thing, we just don't see it anymore because of how the game's changed. So you kind of got to do an apples-to-apples sort of thing and look over the last 20 years. It just hasn't been done. Really, really amazing. I, I, it, it's, it's been fun for me, Matty, because, you know, the second that he ended up uh, signing his, his agreement with the Regina Pat. I was on the horn of the 15 years old, kind of a zit-faced little guy and, you know, just really green to the world. And here he is all these years later as a, a record-setting Canadian for the World Juniors and a guy who's just smashing records for his age in the Western Hockey League. Yeah, it's it's pretty special. Uh, Sam Cosentino, NHL on Sportsnet, and our lead NHL draft analyst. So just a little bit more on Bedard here before we get to the rest of the list. You know, obviously he works on any team that he goes to. We understand that. But is there a team that you think is the best fit for a young guy like that? And, and I don't, like, for me, I don't see the league value in him going to a place like Arizona to play in front of 3,500 people 41 nights a year. Like, is there... Based on what based on what you know about some of these teams, like a Columbus or you know maybe it's a Philadelphia, or whoever the case may be, is there not to not to pick one specific team, but is there a better fit for him one way or another, or is it wherever he goes he'll be just fine? Well, there's a couple of things that stick out for me. I mean, Vancouver is the obvious choice. That's his home province. That's a team that he's been on record as saying is his favorite team growing up. You know, Vancouver's doing it best. To, it's best to try and make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, you know, based on them playing pretty well here lately. But uh, that would be a pretty neat thing to see a hometown guy play for his hometown team that he grew up loving. Like, that would be really cool. Um, I think about Anaheim. You know, you got Trevor Zegers there. You got some of the swagger he brings to the table. Now he's got to kind of move over a spot and allow uh, a Connor Bedard to step in there. But then again, is he sharing the spotlight, kind of like an MVP vote? So is that a great fit? Probably not. Columbus is such a smaller market that no one really knows a lot about. He'd be wasted there. Arizona, 
Like, how long is it going to take to get the Arizona circus figured out? Um, and by the time that happens, have we lost the luster? Because the next Connor Bedard has come along. So I wouldn't want to see it happen in there. Philadelphia, does he really fit the mold of their play? I don't know if he's, that, he's a flyer type of guy. So when I'm looking at it, I'm thinking Vancouver would be first. I think the Montreal Canadiens would be a really fascinating place based on Coach Marty St. Louis, based on the fact they got a guy like Cole Caulfield who's a known sniper as well. You put one sniper on each of your first two lines, I think that would be pretty fun to see. I'd like to see him in a Canadian market because I think Canadian people know a lot more about him. Maybe in terms of growing the game south of the border and continuing the growth that we've seen over the last 20 to 25 years, it might be cool that he gets into a place like, like Anaheim. Uh, but if I had to kind of pick him in my order of preference, Vancouver would be first, Montreal would be second, and probably uh, Chicago in third spot there because I do feel that that's an important market that's obviously going through a, a transition right now. We can, start, we can already talk about it, the frozen envelope, Sammy. The frozen, the frozen ball. Um, okay, on to the list here. So you have Adam Fantilli at number two, and I'm happy you do because uh, we grew up in the same hometown, so that's awesome. Nobleton, Ontario, big shout-out. Um, but he's a really nice consolation prize for, for anybody that doesn't get Connor Bedard, whoever gets to pick second or, or third or fourth, wherever he may fall. Where do you think his long-term fit is in the NHL? Do you think it's in the middle where he can roam, or do you think it's on the wing? No, well, I think it's in the middle. I think he's a really smart player, and I think there's... Um... He's not uh, what I would say an over-engaging or aggressive player in terms of physicality, but to be able to handle the rigors down low, you got to have some size. And you know, you're playing D zone, you're you're coming out below the puck and the breakout routes and that sort of thing. So you need to have that element. He has that. He's got the smarts. He's got the ability to play with some size. I do think that even when looking at his frame now, that he's got room to add strength and muscle. To that frame and that's a scary proposition because he gets around the ice pretty well right now not necessarily playing a bullies game but because of his strength and his size he's able to to get around people with ease i think that happens uh, at the next level based on adding more strength to his game so i do see him down the middle i do see him being effective uh, you know frontline guy for any team that takes him it's not going to happen for adam right away there's going to be that transitional period and i think kind of just growing up physically a little bit is going to be something that uh, is going to help him down the road. But I'd say in three years, you're looking at a number one center. The the other guy, and, and for me, for my money, he's the most intriguing player in this draft because, like, Bedard's Bedard, and that that's a to- totally different world. But Matvey Mitchkov might be the most intriguing player because, A, we have no idea when he's going to be coming to the league. So there's some risk involved in drafting him, especially when you look at the teams that are going to be picking that high. They're Yes, they're rebuilding, but can they take a chance on a guy that may not be coming here for maybe five years, maybe four years? Like, there's a lot that goes into that. Like, could we see a, a couple of things here? Could we see him take a tumble down the draft board? Or could you see a team that's maybe a little bit further along that can take a chance on him that tries to trade up to get him? Yeah, that's fascinating. So a couple of things come into play here. I think you have to have a team that has multiple first-round picks in order to take a shot. We know the contract uh, for him with his club is for another two years after this one. And so that in itself creates some challenges. The geopolitical thing, the war 
it, it creates a number of challenges. So you're really going to have to do your due diligence on the background of this player. Is he going to be allowed to leave the country? Will he want to leave the country? Will his family accompany him? Will he not leave if his family is not allowed to accompany him? So there's two things that I look at. I look at Arizona because they can fit the timeline. They have multiple first-round picks. And if he doesn't show up for five years, it probably works out perfectly for Arizona because either they'll be in a new rink or a new city. The other team that I look at is the Washington Capitals. And I think any team that has Alexander Ovechkin obviously has some sort of geopolitical edge when it comes to drafting Russian players, especially in this particular climate. And that may make the path for someone like him to get to North America to be able to play in the National Hockey League. After that, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's a massive crapshoot in taking this player. Uh, How many head scouts or general managers or assistant general managers have had the opportunity to watch him play live? I'd say there'd be very few, if any at all, who've had that opportunity. Uh, So that, to me, makes him, like you say, one of the most polarizing figures that this draft class has to offer because from a pure skill perspective, he deserves to be in the number one conversation. Everything else, though, won't allow that to happen. It, it how how I know it's it's impossible to answer this, but how far down do you think he could go? Like if he gets to like ten, somebody's just going to go. I I can't pass this up here. And I don't. I feel like that's probably a little bit too low that he would drop. But could you yeah. see a situation like that? Well, I, again, it's a multi-pick team of the Washington Capitals. Yeah. So you know there are other teams that have worked around the fringes of that. Uh, Tampa Bay Lightning would be one. I would say that the Detroit Red Wings and Steve Eiserman with the relationships he has with Russian players that he grew up winning cups with in Detroit may have a similar opportunity to do that and in a time frame that might actually suit them rather well. Um, But so much is really going to depend on where we are with the draft lottery. Like, where does Washington pick? Where is Detroit going to pick? Who has multiple picks? Um, you know, is someone going to take a shot at the title like Arizona who's, who has an extended timeline? That list of teams might be a little bit more than what people think. And then there also comes that drop-off point where you're a team picking 13, 14, 15, and you feel like the, the best pick of the litter is gone, and you're going to take a shot at the title and see what happens. So, again, just plenty of intrigue surrounding that player and where he ends up going. Imagine this scenario. Arizona gets the first pick, they get Bedard, and then they somehow catch some lottery luck with Ottawa's pick. <laughs> they get both <laughs> of them. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be pretty wild. But if they were both picking that high, you'd be definitely taking a shot, I think, with them there. No kidding. Um, just uh, so on on Mitchkov and, and other guys. So Bedard, Mitchkov, Zachary Benson, Andrew Crystal, like they're they're high on your list, and they're undersized skill guys. Is yeah. having these guys this high on boards is that? Is that an indication of where the game is heading or has been heading for a while? Or is this potentially just a one-off year because they all just happen to be born around the same time? Yeah, it's a part and parcel thing. So definitely where the game has come. And, you know, Cole Caulfield is a a really good example of that. Mitch Marner, I mean, he's still a slight-of-frame guy. Go back to his draft class in in, uh, 2015. Like, he's still... He's a slight of frame guy, but he's got that sixth sense about him that he rarely is in any sort of difficulty in terms of contact, and he's slippery enough to avoid uh, solid contact. So that's, that's one element to the conversation. The next is this just happens to be a year where all the best players are smaller, skilled forwards. 
what that does, though, it extends um, a couple of different things. If you're, uh, you know, a defenseman, uh, you know, you're a guy who might, in a normal draft year, be picked in that 12 to 15 range, but a guy like David Reinbacker, who plays in Switzerland, might end up having additional value because the first eight or ten guys you know are going to be forwards. And so he gets picked maybe a little higher than, than what we expect. I think uh, the next thing is you're just looking at a, a, a group of players that when you have that big forward who's a little bit uh, you know, on the bully side of things, he's someone who probably has additional value in this draft class. Again, because you're looking at the top seven or eight guys as being smaller skilled forwards. So the fascinating part to me is that when we get to June, after what happens in the draft lottery on May 8th, where those two elements are going to end up in terms of the top 12 picks in the draft. Does someone jump to take a defenseman for a positional need? Does someone jump to take a bigger, more powerful forward who still has skills because they are adverse to the size thing? So uh, two fascinating elements for sure to watch. Uh, you mentioned Reinbacher there. I have about a minute here. Um, just give us kind of the 411. You know, he played for Austria at the World Juniors. Hard to kind of gauge how good he actually is, but having a really, really good year in the Swiss League, what can you tell us about him? Well, the Swiss League's difficult. It's not the most physical league, but to be able to play top-line minutes in all situations is a difficult thing for a 17-slash-18-year-old to do, and Reinbacker's been able to do that. And being relied on in the power play and the penalty kill as a young player, it's not easy. And as a six foot two hundred ninety-two pound right shot defenseman you have that additional value because you're a right shot guy but i think you know his time at the world juniors you have to take it with a grain of salt the austrians weren't very good he was sick for a better part of the tournament uh, although he did play well when he was healthy early on i think his things in the swiss league and you know i think austin matthews will tell you this it's a really good league it probably goes underrated because we hear about um, the SHL or Liga in Finland or the extra Liga in, in Czech Republic yeah. or the KHL, the Swiss League is down down the totem pole a little bit uh, when you're thinking about that. So I think for Reinbacker, he's a fascinating guy. Right shot defenseman with size. You can play in all situations. Very valuable commodity. For sure. Uh, Sammy, thanks as always for your insight. Greatly appreciated. And, and go win enough tokens to get a shot glass, okay? Ah, you got her. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. There you go. Sam Cosentino, NHL and Sportsnet, our lead draft analyst. Uh, that's it for hour one of the Jeff Merrick Show. When we come back, Steve Valaket, Rangers analyst, will join us. We'll talk about the Rangers game last night, but overall since the trade deadline, where they've been at. Uh, we'll also talk to Josh Yoey from The Athletic about the Penguins in hour two and the random player of the day. Matt Marchesian for Jeff Merrick on the Jeff Merrick Show. You're listening on the Sportsnet Radio Network, watching on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back. Hour two of the Jeff Merrick Show. Jeff will be back tomorrow. He's out for Connor Bedard tanking reasons. Man, I was looking at those Bedard numbers. They are silly. That's gross. 142 points in 54 games. You can't even do that in video games. Like video game numbers for Connor Bedard. My goodness. Joining me on the line now, 
We're going to talk some Rangers. Talk about, we'll talk about a couple of things here, but uh, one of my favorite people in this business joins me on the line. Steve Valcat is the Rangers analyst. He's also a former NHL goalie and president and CEO of ClearSight Analytics. How are you this morning, buddy? I'm good, Matty. How are you doing, buddy? I'm good. I get to fill in for Jeff, so I can't. I, they give me TV time. They give me everything, so I can't really complain. My ugly mug gets on TV. It's not the worst thing in the world. Well, Matty, what do I usually text you back when you ask me to come on the show? I say, Matty knows. Matty knows. That's. <laughs> I love that segment. So, uh, man, I'm all yours, buddy. I'm glad to talk hockey with you today. And same here. So, I was looking at some numbers yesterday and 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 this morning. So. <laughs> The Rangers have been, they've been really good despite yesterday. Like that was, that was actually a really, a really good hockey game to watch yesterday. But, you know, I'm, I'm looking at some stats and since March 4th. So the day after the trade deadline, uh, the Rangers have the third best PDO and the second best PDO against, uh, do you know who is first in both of those categories? Cause I was stunned. Try- Toronto Maple Leafs. It's the Arizona Coyotes. <laughs> They're not doing themselves any favors for Connor Bedard by having numbers like that. Oh, that's funny. That's uh, funny. See how funny it is. Great coaching staff there in Arizona. That uh, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, they've really got those young guys going. But I wanted to focus in on the on the Rangers and you know si- since they acquired Tarasenko and they acquired Patrick Kane that that long that long trail that eventually led to Patrick Kane. It does really feel like they've kind of figured things out offensively. Um, Do you, do you envision any kind of line juggling here? Or do you think that the, that this lineup, the way it is currently constructed, if there are no injuries that this is what the lines are kind of going to look like when the playoffs roll around. Yeah. The lines right now, uh, it's Panarin, Zibanejad and Tarasenko on the first line. But it's pretty interchangeable. You could have the second line playing there at any moment, too, depending on what type of game you're in, and that's Trocheck with Kreider and Kane. The thing about it is, though, too, Maddie, is that um, I, I had heard on – it was actually the Kipper and Bourne podcast. They had Ken Hitchcock on a few weeks ago, and he talked about how in the playoffs the top two lines saw off. And it's the third line that makes the difference in the playoffs. Right now the Rangers' top two lines, the two lines I just named, Depending on the type of game that you're in, I think that, and depending on the type of opponent in the matchup for the first round, you may have one of those two lines take the lion's share of the work, and the third line, provided those two lines cancel out the top two lines of New Jersey is what it's looking like right now, can the third line, which is the kid line, produce and then beat their third line? Because that's where we're at right now, and the kid line has taken a bit of a lull, and that's Heedle, Lafreniere, and Kako. Kako scored last night. Coincidentally, last night in the game, Carolina had two goals from third liners and a goal from a sixth defenseman. So it was depth, and it was Teravainen's goal that was from the top six that really equalized the game. And the Rangers didn't have the big guys that stepped up last night, but what we've seen consistently since March 3rd, since everything settled, uh, this is a terrific lineup. It's an exciting lineup to cover. And the D, we haven't even talked about the D. The D's rock solid. Lindgren's back last night from injury, and he was outstanding coming back. Well, I always made the point, and I've said it a couple times on this show, like when you look at the Rangers from top to bottom, when you look at the top six forwards, you look at the bottom six forwards, then the, the defensive group that they have, plus that, that guy <clears> that's kind of good between the pipes. I know everybody wants to make a big deal about the Bruins because they've been so good all year. But for my money, the Rangers, talent-wise and depth-wise, are one B to the Rain to the to Bruins one A at this point. 
I think so. It's fair. Uh, it's fair. There's been a lot of chemistry in the last few games on the top lines, Zibanejad, Panarin, Tarasenko. You know, it, it's sort of what happened and what put in motion was last season the playoffs. Panarin wasn't great in the playoffs. And, you know, you've kind of set the table when you bring him in as an unrestricted free agent in 2019, and now you're bringing him in and you're kind of setting course for your team. And last year in the Eastern Conference Final, it was basically what what are you asking yourself afterwards? Why didn't we win, right? And what went wrong from last season? Or, Or more importantly, what did we learn? And to me, the Rangers were leading that series 2-0 against Tampa Bay in the Eastern Conference Final, and they were leading 2-1 to going into the third period of Game 3. And then they got shut down. In Game 4, four high-danger chances, they lose 4-1. to Game 5, they have three high-danger chances, they lose 3-1. to And in Game 6, they only have two high-danger chances, and they lose 2-1. to And Panarin was unable to get inside as a shooter, and... That's in games four, five, and six. And then as a passer, only twice in the final three games. So let's just say that your guy that you're trying to wrap your core around isn't able to get inside. Well, how do you – and now I'm getting back to the lineup and why this has kind of transpired. Well, you bring in his best, one of his best friends or a close friend in Tarasenko, and now they're on the same line, and there's certain chemistry right there. And Zibanejad and Tarasenko have been fired together. They seem to be – Zibanejad's almost going through this phase where he's giddy on the bench with the iPad talking to Tarasenko. They're just geeking out, and they're both hockey nerds, you could tell. And at the same time, Kane comes in, and then what happens is, to me, are you going to get more out of Panarin now, the guy that you need to get more out of? And did the trades – did they satisfy your biggest need, which was not defense, but offense last year in games four, five, and six against Tampa Bay? So that's sort of how I feel that this has kind of transpired this year, and that's why the Rangers are in the position they're in. Got lucky to be able to get Kane after Tarasenko, but I'll tell you this, Matty, this is the best lineup I've seen here, and I'm talking about since 1994. Yeah, it's it's wild. When you look at the skill that, that they have up front and the depth that they have on the back end, it's, it's alarming. Like, if I'm a team, I, I don't necessarily want to play against them, but when it comes to the playoffs, you talked about not being able to get inside. Listen, we know that the Rangers have a bunch of guys that go east-west, and that's fine. I, I enjoy that style of hockey. I have no problem with that. In the playoffs, the game becomes north-south, and or at least for the most part, because we saw a lot of open hockey last year, especially in the first round of the playoffs that I don't think anybody was really expecting. But having said that, are, is, is, the, is the perceived lack of physicality that they have in, let's call it their top nine, going to be a problem or do you just look at it and go, listen, they're going to be able to outskill some teams. Yes, the game gets tougher, but they've got guys that have been there. They've they've won. You know, you talk about Tarasenko, you talk about Kane. Does that stuff matter as much anymore? It certainly does. It certainly does. But let's one more time just take a look at the roster and what's changed from last year. If if we're going to say player for player, who's in for who? Trocheck is in for Strom. Trocheck is a terrific net front, broken play, screens, deflection, win battle. Uh, I love him as a playoff player. I think he's going to be terrific for the Rangers. Maybe an upgrade, okay? Tarasenko for Vitrano. Tarasenko, if you watch him shift by shift right now, he, even last night was a great example being against Carolina. He played so heavy. He protects the puck so well. 
He knows how to play the game. He won in St. Louis playing that way. He knows what it's going to take to win. I have a lot of confidence in how he's going to play the game. Kane's in for cop. Now, Kane, of course, is puck possession, and he probably plays defense because he's got the puck so much. His defense is his offense. His possession game is his defense. And now you've got Mikola in for Braun. You could say Mikola and or Harper. Mikola plays hard, man. He plays nails. He, He really does. He plays nails. He's going to block shots. He's going to be hard in front of the net. So he's a heavier player. And, uh, you know, I think, well, what else can you say? Halak for Georgiev, but that doesn't, that's not the conversation. But that's, that's who's in for who. And this is a team that went to the Eastern Conference Final last year and went six games with Tampa. I mean, to me, it's an upgrade at every position. Yeah, oh, I, I, I agree. I, I, they're scary. I, I, that's why I think that they're just as good as the Bruins and they don't get enough, uh, they don't get enough credit for that. So with, with Patrick Kane, so you get to watch him a little bit more closely now that he's with the team. What is the thing that stands out the most to you about his game when you get to watch him more up close and personal? It's a great question. Uh, I'm fascinated with the clutch that he has in his shot. If, if you go to men's league and you watch guys come down the wing and shoot, everybody has a ceremony before they shoot, how they drag the puck and right. You know, the crappier players have the most deliberate, predictable ceremony. Well, he doesn't. And, and you know what else he has to me? He scores by reputation because he almost lulls you to sleep a little bit. He scored against Kemper last week and it was a slap shot that had 74 miles per hour behind it. Not 90, 74 miles per hour. But he winds up, and it's, I, I feel like for a split second, Kemper knew it was him. And he's like, oh, oh, damn, that's Patrick Kane. And then he's looking at his tape because he's got, I don't know if you've seen this recently, but he's got a hockey puck stripes down his white tape job, and then he's got an X through the middle. So anytime <laughs> he gets close to you, you know it's him. And I feel like it's just distracting. And I always, I always come back to that theory as a former goalie is that when you're a star player like a Panarin has a unique tape job, when you have a unique tape job, it throws you off as a goalie, especially when you know it's one of the top guys or a curve, right? So he has that. And to me, what I've noticed with him is he has an extra step of delay when it's necessary, and he gets it off right away when it's necessary. And he really understands as a shooter how to differentiate between those two things. And he also understands as a passer, and I love covering him this way, uh, when to get into coverage and when to get into the teeth of coverage and then to make everybody think that he's going to come right in and then step out for a split-second delay. But he knows three steps ahead that he's going to make that pass in the first place across the slot. And uh, just the way that he's able to do that and, and disguise everything, he's sending false information all over the ice as good as anybody. So fascinating time for me to cover the team because everybody – has their own unique skill set, and there's so much skill and talent up front. Okay, I'm glad you said unique skill set because that brings me to my next guy. Uh, this never used to be a unique skill set, but Jacob Truba is a thumper. And I I know that people don't like him. I love him because his, first of all, he's a throwback. And to a time where, you know, that's when I got locked into hockey as a kid. Everybody was throwing hits like that. Scott Stevens was throwing hits like that. You could go down the list of guys that would, they would literally take your head off. I mean, the game was a lot dirtier, but Jacob Truba, (laughs) for the most part, his hits are violent, but they're also clean. And the one thing about, 
you know, the, the whole narrative surrounding Trubo was, the, you know, if you were on Twitter, and Twitter's a bad place, we know that, but a lot of people weren't happy, Rangers fans specifically, were not happy that he was named the captain. But my goodness, you know, ever since he threw that fit where the team was going through that real rough stretch, he threw his helmet and he had the fights back to back and he went nuts. Like the team really picked up after that. For my money, Jacob Truba is the perfect fit to be the captain of the New York yeah. Rangers. Yeah, you know what? He was working through an injury at the beginning of the year, and it was really affecting his play. And it's tough because I know, too, that I'm not in the trenches. I'm not in the locker room, and I'm not privy to injury information. And I don't really want to be because I don't want it to really affect my analysis, but I also don't want to get myself into trouble and say something I'm not supposed to. <laughs> but um, he went through it, and then he came out of it. It was January 5th where it was against St. Louis. It was the game after on a back-to-back against Chicago where he threw his helmet and uh, got in a big fight, uh, hammered at them to see you. And that, that game changed everything for the New York Rangers. And they went on a 16-0-2 run, I believe it was. And um, then came the All-Star break and the five-day layoff. They came back that next game and the first game back against Calgary, and it happened again. Huge hit on Kadri, had the fight. It was Tanev, I believe it was. And... And, and did it again and just reignited another run for the Rangers. And we've seen it actually three times this year where he started a run. We just got off a 6-0-1 run in the last seven before last night's loss to Carolina. And he did it again to start that run. He gets the temperature. He gets the sense. He's so old school. He's so old school that I appreciate with still the new school mindset to being able to lead the way that he's supposed to lead with the young guys and mentor guys like Keandre Miller. Uh, it's invaluable. Maddie, they made the right decision with who the captain was. And we haven't seen a Stanley Cup winner since the 88-89 uh, Calgary Flames that hadn't had a designated captain named. And that was something that worried me coming into the season if they weren't going to do it. Because in this sport, you need that guy. And the Rangers already knew they had it in him. The players knew they had it in him as a teammate. They all wanted him to be captain. And it's been uh, a breath of fresh air, and it's really set the course for the expectations on the season. Yeah, I just I love that people don't like him. Like I like players like that on my teams. If if somebody doesn't like you, that probably means you're a pain in the ass to play against. And that's Jacob. He's hard Truba. to play against. Yeah, he's yeah, nasty. He's hard to play against. And you know he's out there, so he's a deterrent. Number one. Well, at least you and better you better you all, know he's out there. <laughs> yeah, you have to. Well, that's what playoffs is all about. So as much as Carolina was Carolina last night and just grinding you like they're basically their top no well, their 12 forwards are basically all third liners with the exception of Aho but they all play the same way and they do that and when the Rangers go up against them in a seven game series I'm confident the Rangers would win a seven game series because they have that element more than Carolina has that element and they have a finishing element offensively more than Carolina does but like where the team's at right now, all elements included that we've discussed, uh, they're in a very good place to finish. They've got 11 games to go, stay healthy, and uh, start the right way. But it looks like it's going to be New Jersey in the first round, which is going to be pretty exciting for us. It's a battle of the Hudson for us with New York, New Jersey, and pretty exciting, too, to have the Islanders as likely uh, enter as, as we enter the playoffs to be in as well. We've not, we haven't seen that in like 30 years. Yeah, it's going to be fun, and and you know let, let let's focus let's focus a little bit on the goaltending here because well that's your bread and butter, and you know the position better than a lot of people that I know. So I uh, you know Shesterkin started the year, he was very sloppy. You know he had he had the that the famous quote where he said he was you know playing like bleep, 
and he needed to be better. And and since then, we've seen Igor Shosturkin get back to maybe not quite the level that we saw last season, but of late, he's pretty darn close to that. What what do you think was the biggest change from him in the beginning of the season to what we're seeing now? Uh, during the process of me helping our producer, Paul McHale, uh, trying to put together the rundown for the pregame show, um, I'm able to get on my computer and I use Final Cut. It's a really good software system where I can draw on it. I can add audio to it. And when I clip whatever clips I want to use for the pregame show, I send it to our visual enhancer at MSG Networks. His name is Joe Beans. And Joe was able to use a measuring tool to mark Shesterkin's left skate to his right skate, and we could really get a good scope of what his distance was between his feet when he's standing in his stance this year versus last year. Well, we were able to find out that his feet were two, in some cases, two and a half to even three feet outside his shoulders where they were uh, much closer last season. And fast forward three weeks to where we are today, he's right back there. His feet are back under him. And I'm on the ice. I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, Maddie, but I'm on the ice every day for two hours in the morning with the prep school kids that I coach, the college kids that I coach. So I have a lot of experience on the ice. And if there's one thing that I believe in more than anything right now, fundamentally you need to have your feet under you because the game has gone so east-west now and there are so many broken plays. And if you don't want to get wide and spread out, and Henrik and I were talking about in studio, Henrik Lundqvist and I last night were working together, we were talking about how over the last couple of weeks we haven't seen Igor getting beat through the arm and the body or through the five holes frequently because he doesn't have that tendency to get down to the ice quickly because he's not spread out. He's not wide and outside of his base. Now his posture is much higher, and it doesn't look like he's sitting down in a chair in a classroom. He is got his butt up and he's firm through the thighs and his chest angle strong and he's just noticeably more explosive east to west and look there's and i know this statistically there's 41 percent more east to west plays in the nhl today than there was five years ago now last night it's a one nothing game for the rangers in the third period and i promised uh ranger fans on on twitter that i would explain the jalen chatfield goal right and so if you saw, did you see the goal, Matty? Yes, I did. Okay, so you're familiar how he's a right-handed shot. He comes down the wing. He shoots the puck from outside the slot area, which is key, and Chesterkin has clear view of it. Now, on this play, as a righty, outside the slot, from that angle, what I know because I'm on the ice, as I said, every morning, the only time a righty can beat you across the body is if you make two errors. So if we look at angles, the depth in your crease, squareness of your body, tracking, movement, which two of those really messed him up? And we'll start with the tracking. You can see that when he tracks the puck towards his blocker side, his chin comes to his right shoulder and he turns back towards the net. The second error was his angle. He was off by at least six inches. So because he was off positionally, and because his tracking was tracking up and back rather than tracking down towards the puck as if the net was in front of him, not protecting the one behind him, he would have had a save on that play. Not to mention that Jalen Chaffield is a fifth or sixth defenseman, and it's only his sixth NHL goal, and he's a righty coming across the body from the right side, not a lefty on inside ice. 
that's been the difference for Igor's game this year. He's given up too many low-danger goals. He didn't give up the same number uh, all of last season that he's already exceeded in this season with 11 games to go. Now, statistically, the Jalen Chatfield goal, clear sight, outside slot area, so far this season there's been 14,013 of them for 184 goals. It's a 1.3% shooting percentage. That's the expectations of NHL goaltending right now. If your goalie allows a low-danger goal and the guy at the other end does not in the same game, you lose 86% of the time. It's the, my favorite stat that's been consistent over the last five years within our company. Now, Henrik's aware of that stat because when we work together as former goalies, I will say to him in the studio, I'll be like, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> we just lost. You know, like that's an 86% chance of losing. Like, we talking about? It's like 1-1. I'm like, trust me. Like, it always, it always comes back to haunt you. It sinks the bench. It gets into the mindset of the goaltender and, you know, he gives up two more now in the period and it hurts everybody. And I think that's what, it's the same thing that happened in Toronto last night. Um, Samsonov, he gave up two low danger goals in the game and the guy at the other end did not. But the second goal last night, Fashing's goal was low danger. And the third goal by the Islanders last night, the Clutterbuck goal deflection on the ice. So it's an on the ice delivery for the Clutterbuck goal uh, from the point. Do you want to hear the stats on this one? When a player is deflecting the puck from a point shot that's delivered on the ice and the goalie is set up in his stance in front of that player, there were 2,267 of those over the last two years. 71 goals. Wow. 3.1%, 3.1% chance to score. So when I give presentations to NHL teams when I'm you know, selling our stats, we have nine teams that we have as client teams. Our company, ClearSight Analytics, you probably mentioned it off the top. When we interview and present and go through the process of learning, I have to explain to teams that um, I'm not just like waking up in the morning and saying high danger, low danger, low danger, and calling out the goals subjectively. It's all based on taking these shots in every night. And when the NHL goalies stop them that consistently, they just park themselves into low danger. So another way of saying it would be um, I'm not – telling Samson now that's a bad goal. I'm just telling you that all the other NHL goalies are stopping it. Right? And, <laughs> I like the way you <laughs> put that, a, though. It's a, it's really? a nicer way. It's nice a nicer way to play it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like uh, that line in Moneyball. I'm not telling him this or that, but uh, the nice way to say it is he lacks confidence. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's true, though. No, those numbers, see, that, and that's the thing, Like especially when we talk about goaltending. Um, the when we look at those types of chances, like I never would have thought that it was that not that, that it's that big of a deal because you also know that those kind of goals sink a team just from an emotional standpoint, like a bad goal that goes in in a spot that you should probably stop it is not good for morale. But the fact that, you know, in looking at that goal and as you're breaking it down, I'm watching it. Like all of these things make sense. My thing is, is what are teams doing to, to like, are do, you said you have nine clients with ClearSight Analytics. Like, I feel like that's not enough. Like, I feel like teams aren't doing enough to ensure that their goalies have all the pertinent information that is going to make them better. You know what my biggest stumbling block is to sign teams? What's that? Money. Money. Really? Teams are cheap. Very Holy cheap. Smokes. And I'm talking about entry level for just the goalie coaches to have the right information. $3,000 a month. Is that is that a lot, Matty? Not for, for these teams. teams. Maybe for these, Arizona. Uh, teams are, 
<laughs> teams are cheap. I'm telling you, it's been a it's, it's a very difficult process to land teams. But a lot of teams, I have to get buy-in. It takes a year. It takes a year to 18 months to land a team. And uh, it's a long process. I've got a lot of support from the coaching staff. Specifically, the goalie coaches help a lot. But uh, if I was to back up to five years ago or six or seven years ago, when I was really getting into it, I never would have thought it was this hard to land teams. The, uh, the easier route right now for me or the path of uh, less resistance is actually working with players and helping players score more. And I'm working with some goalies now too. And uh, working with them on milestones that they hit is a, it's, a, it's a thrilling experience for me. So I get a big kick out of that. And that's something that's actually going to probably supersede my involvement with teams because teams, uh, aside from the ones that I'm working with now, are very hard to deal with day to day. Well, Adam Oates has a bunch of clients that he's working with. The, the, skill, the skill coaches seems to be where this thing is all heading. I may need you for my men's league season because it's just around the corner. <laughs> and I was having a lot of, I was having a lot of trouble uh, scoring goals that weren't tips from six Natty. feet out. So, I mean, Natty, start with, start with a unique tape job, disguise it so that you can take the goalies focus away from what really matters, which is the puck and have something unique on your tape job. I might have to do that. I have an all black stick. Now I changed the flex on it and everything. I'm really, I'm really into it this year. Uh, maybe I'll jump on the bike or something <laughs> to get myself in shape. One of these days, uh, listen, Steve, uh, you've been, uh, you've been very generous with your time as you always are greatly appreciate your insight. And, uh, and thanks so much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, Matty. Anytime, buddy. Have a good show. Thanks, buddy. There you go. Steve Valiquette, Rangers analyst, former NHL goalie and president and CEO of clear sight analytics. And, what a what a stat! The Jalen Chatfield goal that was scored last night goes in like one percent of the time. That is just wild. And on a goalie like Igor Shosturkin, Steve is one of the finest at breaking down the goaltending position. He is awesome. Okay, we missed it yesterday because I was super busy. Um, but today, it's back. The random player of the day, and for this one, we are going way back in the time machine here. Former Boston Bruin, only a Boston Bruin throughout his NHL career, and that is Aubrey Ditt Clapper. This one submitted by A.J. Becker. And, you know, in looking at, at Ditt Clapper, there's there's a lot of firsts for him. He's a really important person in the history of the game. He was born on, on February 1st, 1907 in Newmarket, Ontario. He was the first real kind of big man in the NHL. He was 6'2 and 200 pounds. Played in the late 20s. Started his NHL career in the late 20s. He was a massive, massive amount of a man. And aside from, you know, he didn't really mix it up. He was certainly not afraid to fight. But aside from one incident, he was a really, really tame player. And that incident was when he received a, a butt end from a Montreal Maroons player, Dave Trottier, to which Dick Clapper responded by high-sticking him over the head twice, gets the penalty, and referee Clarence Campbell, yes, that same man who would eventually become NHL president called him a profane name. Dick Clapper asked him to repeat what he said. After it was repeated, Dick Clapper knocked him off his skates with a punch. He was actually not even suspended for that because Clarence Campbell said, well, hold on a second. I provoked him. He just walked away with a mere $100 fine. A $100 fine in like the 1930s is, uh, yeah, that's a lot of dough. Dick Clapper was known more for breaking up his fights rather than starting them, but definitely not afraid to engage in fisticuffs, mainly because other guys were just scared of fighting him because he was such a massive human being. He scored 10 seconds into his NHL debut against the Chicago Blackhawks. He played as a forward on the dynamite line with Cooney Whalen and Dutch Gaynor. It was one of the first lines that had ever gotten a nickname. 
And then, of course, there were there were other ones after, including the Kraut line, which we know the Boston Bruins. We had the Kid line in, in Toronto. Um, and then plenty more after that. But they were one of the first. Now, when we talk about Dick Clapper, we talk about a lot of firsts, like I mentioned. He was the first player to be an all-star at both forward and defense. And when we look at that, we look at Red Kelly being the other. We also look at the first player to play in 20 NHL seasons. He's the only player coach in Bruins history and the longest serving Bruins, longest serving Bruins captain until Ray Bork had broken that record. Uh, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1947 along with former teammate Eddie Shore. We talked about this on the show. The Boston Bruins have the richest history of great defensemen that have ever played the game. You talk about the link from, from Eddie Shore and Dick Clapper to Fern Flamin to uh, Bobby Orr to Brad Park to Ray Bork to um, Zdeno Chara. You can you go through the list of great defensemen that the Bruins have had, and it is an insane, insane list. And Dick Clapper is... You know, he was the first true Bruin, played his entire career with the Boston Bruins. Uh, he also has a street named after him. It's called Dick Clapper Way or something like that, in Hastings, Ontario, in which he resided. Uh, he passed away at the age of 70 from complications from a stroke he had suffered just years before. Dick Clapper played all 824 games, as we mentioned, with the Boston Bruins, scoring 228 goals, adding 246 assists. The new market native, Dit Clapper. It was a lot of fun looking back on that, especially when the fact that he punched out Clarence Campbell. God, that's a good one. If you would like to submit yours, your random player of the day, jam show at sportsnet.ca. Heavy up against the break, but when we come back, Josh Yoey from The Athletic will join us. The Pittsburgh Penguins get the Colorado Avalanche tonight trying to snap a losing streak. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. They did get a break last night as the Florida Panthers lost to the Philadelphia Flyers. We're going to chat with the, about the Penguins with Josh Yoey from The Athletic when we come back on the Jeff Merrick Show. Matt Marchese in for Jeff. You're listening on the Sportsnet Radio Network and watching on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back. The final segment of the Jeff Merrick Show on Sportsnet Radio Network. Simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Uh, only two games on the board tonight, and one of them features the Pittsburgh Penguins. They'll take on the Colorado Avalanche. You can watch that one on Sportsnet, and uh, it's been a rough go. Four straight losses for the Penguins, and it doesn't get any easier tonight. Joining me to talk about that and much more, Josh Yoey from The Athletic joins me. Josh, how are you today? Great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Well, I'm better than the Pittsburgh Penguins right now. That goes without saying. Aren't we all? Yeah, all right, we are. <laughs> and, and you know, it's it's been a grind for the Penguins of late. They've lost, like I mentioned, four in a row. The most recent one where they literally threw everything and the kitchen sink at Dylan Ferguson. They could only manage one goal. What's it, what is the level of frustration with the fan base right now with how the season has gone? Oh, it's not good. I, I can tell you just from fans I speak with just on, on social media or even uh, friends of mine who are Penguins fans, 
Um, I would tell you probably 50% of the fan base would almost prefer the Penguins miss the playoffs just to ensure that significant changes are made in the front office. That's how much disgust there is for Ron Hextall and the job he has done as general manager. Um, There's a hopelessness in Pittsburgh that has not been evident really since Sidney Crosby's rookie season. Um, And I think, you know, the feeling is, and it's one that I share, even if they make the playoffs, there's no way in the world this team is beating Boston or Carolina in the first round. Um, This is a team that has two good top lines. And other than that, there's just almost nothing there. It's a really flawed roster. You know, Ron Hextall got obviously a lot of flack for the deadline moves that he made. It was just a, such a curious deadline. They bring in Dmitry Kulikov. They bring in Mikhail Granlin. They bring in uh, Nick Benino. Two of those guys haven't panned out because, well, they've been hurt. And mm. it, it's just how much of this was just because Ron Hextall was not dealing from a position of strength and how much of it was he looked at this roster and said, if we get in, great. If we don't, um, that's the way that it's going to go just because we just don't have the assets that we can move out for, you know, a guy like Jacob Chikrin or anybody of significant impact here. Yeah. I, I think he made some moves because he felt pressured to do something, especially when you look at what the rest of the Eastern conference was doing, you know, every day it was Tarasenko or Kane or one big name after another. Um, they don't have a lot of assets to deal. You know, I didn't have a problem really They didn't get anything to get those guys. It wasn't hurting anything. Um, the Mikel Granlund deal, however, that's the one that, that made no sense to me at the time, and it still doesn't. Granlund has really struggled. He only has two points in his time with the Penguins. He, he's been invisible. And Ron Hextall received a gift from the St. Louis Blues when they picked Casper Kapanen's contract on waivers. And he actually did a good job to get rid of Brock McGinn to Anaheim. So that gave him some money to play with this summer, theoretically, when this team can be retold. But then you just pick up Mikel Granlund, who's making $5 million, million a season for the next two years, and that's just going to handcuff them again. It didn't really make any sense to me, and I can tell you he's made no impact at all. Yeah, that one was a curious one to me. A guy who's over 30, and, and God knows you have enough guys over the age of 30 on this <laughs> roster uh, to add another one um, and doesn't really fit that mold. Like, he's, he's another, you know, Brian Burke has always talked about soft skill, soft skill. Well, that is a guy with soft skill and doesn't really fit, you know, for a team that, let's face it, was getting knocked around by the Islanders physically. And you know yeah. that Brian Burke does not like that. Like, that is the one thing that Berkey knows. And, and for my time working with him, he hates when his teams get knocked around. I was just kind of surprised that that's the route that they went, considering that, Maybe they could have added. Maybe they could have added a guy like Zach McEwen, at least to give you something down the stretch here that can add a little bit of toughness for you. But it was just a really odd way to kind of go about the roster construction, given that they were getting knocked around by more than just the Islanders. There's no question, and people often ask me how much influence Brian Burke has. He's the team president. How much influence he has over Hextall, and my answer is absolutely none, apparently, because. Brian Burke, if he were truly calling the shots on this roster, he wouldn't be bringing in Mikhail Granlund. Uh, the Penguins have been pushed around all season. Uh, if anybody takes runs at Sidney Crosby or Evgeny Malkin or Crystal Tang, those are the three who are basically looking out for one another on the ice. If you ever watch, when there's an incident in a game, Malkin's the first guy to jump into a scrum or Latang or Crosby. I mean, it is, it's been that way for a long time now. It's, it's painful to watch. 
And the Penguins just get abused in front of the net, both in the offensive zone and the defensive zone. They're not only the oldest team in the NHL, but they're one of the smallest. And it's just an enormous problem. People ask me all the time, what's wrong with the Penguins' power play? They have all this talent. Like, well, Jake Ensel's a great player, but he's your net front presence. He, he weighs 170 pounds on a heavy day. Um, that's just the way it is. That's how you beat them. The Islanders have done it a couple of times in the playoffs. And I'm surprised more teams haven't figured that out against them. Uh, you can be so physical against them, and they really only have so many answers. And Granlin, they already have undersized small guys. Granlin, to me, was the last guy that they really needed. Josh Joey from The Athletic, joining Matt Marchese here on The Jeff Merrick Show. So the other the other kind of issue here is uh, it's, it's twofold. One, uh, Jeff Carter's contract sucks. Uh, and the fact that he's a 35-plus contract means if he retires, uh, they're going to have to eat that cap hit. Plus, he's got a no-move clause. Like, there's a lot of – actually, there's not a lot of moving parts here. It's not really going anywhere. Um, that coupled with the fact that Jeff Carter just hasn't played well enough to justify, you know, his not only his money, but a spot in the lineup. Um, what is the play here? Like, is that contract just going to die with the Penguins and, and that's it? Because that's been, you know, we talk about moving Kapanen and moving McGinn, but that contract is really the, the anchor on this roster right now. Carter has been so bad that it's difficult for me to articulate just, just how bad he's been. And he wasn't at first when he arrived in Pittsburgh. He was great two years ago. Yeah, he was. Uh, he scored, And he was fine last year. You could see him on the decline last year, but he, he was okay. Um, for Hextall to give him a two-year contract last January was staggering at the time and even more so now. Carter, not only is he not scoring, I mean, he's, I think he has nine goals and three of them are empty netters or something like that. He can't score anymore. But it's his defensive play that, that's really horrendous. And curiously, Mike Sullivan, who I have a ton of respect for, who I think is a great coach, he keeps using Carter in high-leverage situations defensively because he's a good face-off guy. I understand he's a good face-off guy, but he's just killing the Penguins when he's on the ice. I know they have to pay him next season. He's going to count against their cap no matter what happens. I don't know how you can play him next season. I don't think they should be playing him now. Uh, I, I mean, he, he's literally hurting them every time he's on the ice. There was a game last week, I think it was the Montreal game, he was a minus four, and he played 13 shifts. But that, that's really hard to do, especially against a bad team. And it's just killing them. And they have some other bad contracts. Jeff Petrie has been really disappointing. He makes more than $6 million a year. That's a real problem. There are a couple of others. But, boy, Carter, uh, he's the ringleader in that regard. He's just been absolutely awful. You mentioned Mike Sullivan in there. And, and I'm, I'm curious to see. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts here for the Penguins this offseason. What happens with the front office, especially with the new ownership group in place? And then it comes down to what happens to the coach. Because – Mike Sullivan is the second longest tenured head coach in the league, and he's been very successful with the Penguins, no question. But if the front office gets an overhaul, I I wonder about Mike Sullivan's future, if he'll be looking for work. And if he were looking for work, I feel like he wouldn't be out of a job very long. Oh, no, I don't think he would at all. Um, you know, all great coaches have an expiration date in cities, right? I mean, yeah, he's won two Stanley Cups. He's been great. He revitalized Crosby and Malkin's career when they were – floundering a little bit um i think he's a great coach um maybe his time is coming to an end here maybe a fresh start would be good for him um that said i don't think he's going anywhere i'd be very surprised if ron hextall is back next season i, I really think 
barring a very surprising playoff run, I, I think he's out. Um, Mike Sullivan, I, I think he will stay. He still has four years on his contract for one thing. And I can tell you this, Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin and Crystal Tang, they love Mike Sullivan. They don't want him going anywhere. And from what I've been told, uh, Sullivan has really endeared himself to the Fenway Sports Group, which now owns the Penguins. Maybe it's the Boston connection. I don't know what it is, but uh, I've been told by more than one person, the Fenway people, the ownership, they really love Sullivan. So I, I think his job is safe for now. But make no mistake, uh, this is a franchise that needs some very serious change. And, oh, I think it's coming in the next couple of months. It's really easy for, for us to say, well, you know, if they hadn't signed Evgeny Malkin and they let him walk, that they would have had money to do things elsewhere. But at the end of the day, it did feel like that was always going to be the case, that they were going to eventually come to a deal with Malkin and Crosby and and Malkin, um, and, and Latang and, and really kind of make this thing work. The, the issue is what they've done on the periphery. And, and one of those guys is Brian Russ. Now he gets the contract extended. I think he was the most surprising of anybody that I thought was, I thought he was gone. I thought he was going to ask for too much money and it wasn't going to be able to work. But this season, you know, it, it really hasn't lived up to the deal. 38 points in 69 games is a far cry from averaging almost a point per game. Two of the last three seasons. What's kind of gone wrong here for Brian Rust? Well, yeah, first of all, I, I want to touch very quickly on what you mentioned at the beginning of your statement. Um, if anybody thinks Crosby and Malkin are the problem with the Penguins, yeah, you're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Crosby's still on pace for 100 points. He's been great. Malkin, you can Malkin's not as dominant as he was a decade ago. He, he's a step slower. He's still going to put up 85 or 90 points. Um, these guys are still great. The Penguins have surrounded them with a team that's just not good enough and that's too old, and that's the problem. And Brian Rust, yeah, he might be one of those guys. He'll be 31 in May. Um, and boy, he's not a big guy. He's played a ton of playoff games. He's, he's blocked an awful lot of shots. He's taken a beating in his day. Maybe he's the kind of guy who's not going to age very well. And maybe that's what we're seeing. I, I can tell you, Rust is an extraordinarily prideful guy. Uh, he's not mailing it in just because he got paid. He's not one of those guys at all, but he quite frankly, looks a step slower this season. He does not skate with quite the explosiveness that he once did. I, too, was surprised the Penguins brought him back. I just thought maybe a young and up-and-coming team would see him in those Stanley Cup rings and all of those clutch goals that he scored over the years and would overpay him. But he really wanted to stay in Pittsburgh. Um, I can tell you Sidney Crosby wanted him to stay in Pittsburgh. He's one of his favorite teammates, one of his favorite line mates ever. I don't think that hurt the cause. Um, but he's not been good enough, and he's one of 15 guys on this roster who is 30 years of age or older. It's just an incredible number. Yeah, it really is. And and as someone who is in their 30s, uh, mid-30s to that, um, yeah, it's not great when you get past that 30 mark. I felt like the minute I rolled out of bed at 30, things went the wrong way. And uh, I, I maintain that to this day. Um, speaking of Crosby, you talked about the incredible season side. Like, there was a point where there people were talking about him getting MVP votes. Uh, we all know who's yeah. going to win that now, but Crosby's had an incredible year, 83 points in 70 games. Um, obviously, Sid wants to win. We know that. We can see that in his play. You could, It's Sidney Crosby. Of course he wants to win. But where's the level of patience with him right now? Like, this is year one into the, I don't want to call it a new era, but it's, you know, it's the clock winding down at this point. And, you know, that the window gets shorter and shorter the older you get. Where's his level of frustration with what's been going on this season? Uh, he'll never come out and say it because that isn't his way. But my sense is that it's pretty high. 
he knows he only has so many years left playing at this level. Um, and I know Sid well enough to know uh, Stanley Cups are literally the only thing that drive him at this point. He's done everything there is to do. He's won the gold medals, the scoring titles. He, he knows he's in the Hall of Fame. He knows history will gauge him as one of the greatest players to ever play the sport. Uh, he just wants to win more Stanley Cups. That's all. And he, he knows how far away this team is right now. And even his body language lately, even on the ice the last couple of games, not that he's not trying hard or you know playing well. He always does. But I, I do sense that there's just some doubt creeping into his mind that maybe, man, we're, we're not a very good team right now. Um, even Evgeny Malkin the last couple of days, who and I, I never blame guys if they don't want to speak with the media. I wouldn't want to speak with us either. Um, Evgeny Malkin, he, he's been great dealing with the media the last couple of years. He really has, despite the language barrier. He's taken on that responsibility more and more. The last two days we've asked him to speak, and he politely said no. I've, I've never seen him do that before. You can tell Crosby and Malkin, they're not used uh, to this kind of a situation, just trying to battle just to be a wild card team. I think it's taking a toll on them, and they're smart guys. They, they can look around, and they know how flawed this roster is. This is it's almost an impossible question to know the answer to at this point, but when, when the contract is up and Sid still, if he still wants to play when it's up, do you think he would consider going elsewhere? Would do you, Does he strike you as the guy that would go out and try and chase a cup with another team? No, he does not. Um, and I can tell you his two heroes in the hockey world, both as a child and I think even into his adult years, were Steve Eiserman and Mario Lemieux. And he's told me before how much he admires the fact that Eiserman only ever played for the Wings and that Mario only ever played for the Penguins. And I've always sensed that he wants that to be a part of his legacy too. And, and Sid, um, he's a creature of habit, doesn't like change all that much. I just think he's so comfortable in Pittsburgh that I'd be surprised if he ever left. But 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 I know if he doesn't have a contract in that final year for, for you know the following years, I know what the buzz is going to be. We all know how close he is with Nathan McKinnon, and we all know that the Avs could use a second line center. And I bet Sidney Crosby would look pretty good in that role in a couple of years. So if he were ever to go anywhere else, I know that would be the odds-on favorite. But I still think it's pretty unlikely. I would I would sign up for that. Um, uh, j- just a, just a couple of minutes left here with you, Josh and uh, Tristan Jari. So he's a, a free agent at the end of the season. Uh, this goaltending is going to be a big question for this team. You know, we we talked about them not getting saves. Uh, I assume that he hits free agency, but what do you think the direction is for the Pens here? Because uh, it's not like there's a plethora of free agents out there that are going to be difference makers. No, it's not a great free agent crop at all. Uh, Tristan Jari has been a disaster lately. He's been pulled four times in the last month, uh, three of those on home ice, two of those against Montreal and Columbus, two of the worst teams in the league. Um, he's been dealing with injuries. Uh, there have been a lot of reports about him having a hip injury. Um, he's had multiple injuries to deal with this season, but he has not been reliable and he just doesn't look mentally prepared some nights and he's almost 28 years old. Uh, that's a real concern, and for those who don't know, yeah, he's an unrestricted free agent this summer. Um, if you would have asked me this question four months ago, I would have told you that the Penguins are going to give him a long-term deal because I know Ron Hextall likes him. And Tristan Jari is physically gifted. He's been to two All-Star games already. I mean, he, he when he's good, he's really good. But he's also never won a playoff series. He's had some meltdowns in the playoffs. And he's playing the worst hockey of his NHL career right now. 
So I think it would be madness for the Penguins to give him a long-term deal this summer. If they can keep him on a one- or two-year deal, maybe. If somebody wants to throw a ton of money at him, I bet he walks. Um, He's been, of, of all the problems the Penguins have right now, he is very near the top of the list. They don't know what guy they're getting from one night to the next. Yeah, it's been really tough slaying. And it doesn't get any easier tonight against the Colorado Avalanche who are rolling. Josh, uh, thanks as always for taking some time for me today. Really appreciate it. I am my pleasure. Anytime. There he goes. Josh Joey from The Athletic. And uh, we mentioned that game. That game on at 8 p.m. Eastern on Sportsnet. Uh, there's also another one. The Oilers taking on the Arizona Coyotes. That one at 10.30 p.m. Eastern. And as I pull up the schedule, I believe that is also on Sportsnet. If it's not, it's on Sportsnet 1. It's on Sportsnet 1 and Sportsnet West. So just two games on the go. So you have plenty of time to go out, have your have a nice dinner, come back, sit down, and watch Wednesday night hockey. Very, very easy. Very big thank you to everyone that joined me on the show today. Scotty Lachlan pinch hitting for Elliot Freeman. Always, uh, always great to have Scotty on. And, and thanks for doing that on short notice. Uh, also, we had uh, we had Sam Cosentino, NHL and Sportsnet, live from David Buster's. What a scene. Week two of March break for Sammy and his kids. No thanks. One week is enough. Uh, he's our he's our lead draft analyst. And in hour two, Steve Valiquet, Rangers analyst, former NHL goalie and president and CEO of ClearSight Analytics, was awesome. Always, always, always love having Steve on. And Josh Yoey, who you just heard from The Athletic. For Lance Kennedy, for Jennifer Rolnick, behind the glass, I'm Matt Marchese filling in for Jeff Merrick, who is back tomorrow. The Jeff Merrick Show returns. You've been listening to the show on the Sportsnet Radio Network and watching on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Have a good day.